Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now it's time to listen to this week's message. I want you to take your Bible with me. Go to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. If you didn't receive a message card on your way in, you can raise your hand. And uh, someone will serve you there. Uh, you can also, of course, find this online at the Uversion app as well. Genesis chapter 13. We're in week three. Everybody say week three. Week three of a series through the life of Abraham called Multiply, which we're, what we're doing is we're taking some time to talk about where God is taking us as a church, where he's taking us as a movement. God has blessed us, dwelling place. Amen? And with that blessing comes the responsibility to multiply it. God does not bless us for our own comfort. He blesses us that we, he might use us as a blessing in this community. He might use us as a blessing to the people around us. So we're talking about steps, if you're just jumping in with us, that we as a church have to take in obedience to that. What are the steps that we as a church have to take? We're also talking about what your role is individually. What you have to do individually. How do you have to sacrifice? How is God asking you to be a part of the grander picture? How can you obey in what God is asking you to do? And so this series is not just about what God wants to do through us in the community, although that's a part, but it's also about what He wants to do in us as He deepens our trust in Him and our commitment to the mission of God. So the way I say it, you'll see at the top of your card, is he's multiplying deep in us our love for God and wide through us our effectiveness or our mission in this community. He's multiplying both deep and wide. That's what God did in the life of Abraham and certainly what God wants to do with us today. I told you two weeks ago that many times if you're driving a car that's out of alignment, I don't know if you've ever driven a car that's out of alignment, but when you drive a car that's out of alignment, you take your hand off of the wheel of your car We'll usually go over to the bu- 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 things on the right, right? Or maybe go over to the left. It'll drift left or right. And, and, and much like that, our hearts, when they're left to their own, they begin to drift. You know what they drift to? Self-sufficiency and selfishness. That's what they drift to. They drift to self-sufficiency. They drift to self-dependency. We find ourselves in trouble. So periodically, the Holy Spirit needs to get our attention to have us examine what our priorities are. Whose mission we're really living for. Who are we trusting? Who are we casting our lives on, so to speak? And so notice that the, the ditch of self-centeredness and the ditch of self-sufficiency is only able to be corrected when God begins to allow us to, to re-examine our priorities. And now sometimes when God does that, it could be through a sermon. Sometimes it could be through a dramatic moment. I read uh, of a dad um, not long ago whose, um, whose son, was, ha- he was he was having some behavioral issues. This dad was really, really kind of perplexed. He didn't know what to do. The man tried everything he knew to get his son's attention, but nothing worked. He read all the books he could read. He even read Paul Tripp's book, Shepherding the Child's Heart. He read Paul David Tripp's book. He, he read the love languages. He did all he could to try to get the understanding of how he could help this son. But nothing helped. But because he was a pilot, he said, you know what? I'm going to take my son for a ride on my airplane to give him a different perspective, if you will. To talk to him. I'm going to get him up in the air to talk to him about his need to grow up, become a man, and make better decisions. And, and what he found very quickly is he discovered that these high-altitude conversations put his son in a totally different frame of mind. Totally different. And after they returned from the flight, the, the son was so much more cooperative. The son would be respectful. The son would listen to the dad. And so whenever the boy's behavior began to deteriorate again, then he would take him up on another play ride. He would look him straight in the eye and he would tell him what he expected of his son. 
Well, one of this man's friends at the church was amazed at this technique. So he asked him, he said, sir, can I come with you on your next plane ride with your son? I want to see if this might work with my son. Well, the dad agreed. And during the flight, the second man took this photograph. Hold on. Took this photograph, which might help explain why the technique was so successful. But this is the photograph he took there that day. All right. And so... I'm lying. I didn't hear of that story. I just totally made that up. But nonetheless, this is what God does with us sometimes. Anybody ever been put on the front of a plane before? And God is re-examining some priorities. That's what July is about. This picture is my July. And it starts with me. It's God saying, whose mission are you really living for, Craig? How are you giving? How are you living your life? How generous are you? And so these high plane, high altitude conversations can begin to begin to dramatically change our life. God does this from time to time to help us get our bearings straight. Now listen, I I know it might be uncomfortable for you, even this series, maybe today's message, if I'm just really honest with you, it's uncomfortable for me too. But that's good. That's the dilemma of being a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 2. We're not dead sacrifices, we're living. Sacrifices are typically dead. The dilemma of being a living sacrifice is that living sacrifices like to crawl back off the altar. So that's what we're doing in this series is we're taking ourself and laying it back on the altar. We're taking our living sacrifice and placing it back on the altar of Almighty God. Today we're going to talk about establishing your priorities. I'm titling this message, Prioritize and Surrender. Prioritize and Surrender. I want to talk about two stories in the life of Abraham. Now you're going to see God put Abraham in a couple of situations where he has to choose what's most important. Abraham has to choose what is most foundational to his life. He's not having to choose between something good and bad. That is not the decision of Abraham. He's having to choose what is best out of a lot of good options. Sound like us? A lot of good options he should be involved in, but he's got to choose what is weightiest. He's got to choose what is best, which should come first. And these subtle choices that Abraham makes, church, have a dramatic impact on the way his life turns out. Literally, his life becomes an altogether different life because of the subtlety of the the decisions he makes. Listen, y'all, every leadership book I've read, which is quite a few at this point, every leadership book I've ever read says that establishing priorities is the most essential key to success in life. Establishing priorities. Knowing what in a long list of good things should actually come first. Knowing what should be given my most time, my most precedence to. Those things that are mission critical, and then those things that are good but not essential. Good, great. Virtuous but not essential to the mission that God has us on this planet. In the kingdom of God, church, that is especially true. Genesis 13, let's begin reading. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot, his nephew, went with him into Negev. Negev, which would later become Israel, which was a region in the future Israel. Verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock. He was rich in silver. He was rich in gold. And he journeyed as far as Bethel. Everybody say Bethel. The house of God, Bethel, he he journeys there to the place where he had made an altar at the first. If you like to underline your Bible, if you don't have a pen, I don't know, prick your finger, get some blood, do something. Because that is a point and a a scripture you want to put down in your spirit. Notice that Abraham goes to Bethel, the place where he had made an altar at the first. That's what our Bible says. And there Abram again, notice not the first time, there Abram again called upon the name of the Lord. 
Verse 5, and Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds. He's the nephew and tents. And so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Two rich men. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Notice it did not say there was strife between the two men. It was indirect strife coming through the herdsmen. You need to understand that too. And I'll come back to that at the end. Verse 8. And so Abram said to Lot... Hey, there's no reason, Lot. You're my nephew. Let's don't let any strife be between you and me. There's no sense in, in doing that. Is this not the whole land before you? He says, hey, listen, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And, and if you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. Listen to me. What Abraham does right there is pretty much totally unheard of in civilization. What are you saying, Craig? The average observer in the days of Abraham would have expected one of two reactions when two people couldn't dwell together. The first one would be called war. Now, we know that Abraham is the older man. We know that Abraham is richer. He's more powerful. If war would have taken place, he would have destroyed his nephew. would have destroyed all of his nephew's livestock. We'd know who would have won that. Or Abram could have just asked Lot to go somewhere else. After all, who's the main figure? Who's the big man in this party? His name is Abraham. Who received the promise of God? Not Lot. Lot is a tag-along to the blessing of Abraham. I know you never had any Lots in your life. All right, and any Lots following through season after season. But Abraham is the one that's given the promise. Abraham is the one that's been told that as numerous as the stars in the sky, so shall your descendants be. Now, notice that. He's older. He's received the promise directly from God. He is his uncle. But Abraham does need either of those things. Not only does he avoid conflict, he gives the lesser man the better choice. That, my friends, is unheard of. Now, how many of you, you had an older brother? Just raise your hand. Older brother raising, yeah, growing up. All right, cool. This is unheard of, right? It'd be like him giving you an extra piece of chicken, fried chicken at that, at dinner, right? That's just not going to happen. It'd be like he'd give you the last piece of cake or the last brown. That's just totally unheard of. First him. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Take out your pen. Notice what Lot saw. There's a spiritual dimension to what Lot's seeing. He saw Eden. It was watered like the garden of the Lord. Please understand why Moses is intentional to put those words when he was scribing this book. He, he Lot, saw and he thought it was like Eden. He thought it was like the garden of the Lord, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Verse 12, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now we've got a problem already. We've got a man who just was willing to live in Canaan, Abraham, and we've got a man who pitched his tent next to Sodom. Now the men of Sodom, verse 13, were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. At verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Lift up your eyes, Abram. Look from the place where you are. Look northward. Look southward. Look eastward. And look westward. And for all the land you see, I will give to you. And I will give to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Pause. If God could ever up the ante on a promise, he just did it. He said, the stars ain't enough. Now I'm going to go to the particles of the dust on the earth. This is God up in the ante. This is God saying, I'm not backing down in this moment. My, my intensity of the promise and the desire to give you the blessing only intensifies as you consistently live a generous, obedient lifestyle you need to understand what God's doing here he says now look down at the the seashore look down at the sand the particles of the dust so shall your descendants be verse 17 arise walk God says through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you 
What a stretch of text. What I see here is a contrast between two different sets of priorities. Two different ways of looking at the world. Both Lot and Abraham were both ambitious men. Both made smart decisions according to a particular system of values. They were very wise decisions. But Abraham's choices led to prosperity, increased prosperity, and blessing and multiplication. That's what we're after this series. But Lot's decisions led to destruction. Abraham, you'll see, is going to have to rescue Lot twice from Sodom. The very next chapter, chapter 14, the kings of Sodom get Lot. Guess who has to come pick up the nephew? It's Abram. He has to rescue him from Sodom. Not only that, but you get to chapter 19 or chapter 18, just a minute before God destroys Sodom with uh, brimstone, right, with, with fire. When he pours out on Sodom and Gomorrah, guess who rescues this man? It's Abram again. And ultimately what happens there? His wife turned to a pillar of salt and, ate, and, and Lot lost all of his possessions. So let's look at the value systems and priorities of each. You ready? Let's look at Lot first. Number one, Lot prioritized the riches he could see. Lot prioritized the riches he could see. When Lot looked out at the options, he made his choice based on one factor. You know what it was? What direction can make me wealthier? What part of the land can I take that's going to make me wealthier? Financially, his decision was a good choice. According to the financial system, that would be a good choice. But in the process, he showed total disregard and even disdain for spiritual things. He knew God. A lot was a worshiper of God. There's no prayer or consultation with God in his choice. He doesn't ask God where he should go. He just takes the choice based on his set core value. And he makes his home next to Sodom. Everybody say Sodom. Which Sodom was notorious for its wickedness. He put his family in grave spiritual danger because Sodom was where the money was at. In fact, that's the only reason he moved there. It's because where the money was at. And you see these choices for Lot play out tragically in his family. Tragically. Can I just give you real quick, I don't have time to do there, follow the trajectory of Lot. This is chapter 13. In chapter 13, he moves next to Sodom. In chapter 14, he's no longer next to Sodom, but he's actually in Sodom. Tell me if this isn't the picture of sin. In chapter 19, not only is Lot in Sodom, he's one of the most respected men in Sodom. Are you watching the trajectory? And eventually, when God calls him out of Sodom, his wife is so in love with the material possessions of Sodom and the way of life of Sodom that she can't leave it, and God turns her into a pillar of salt. What are you here to say, Craig? Listen, God sometimes calls calls people to live in Sodom. He does. He's not saying you shouldn't live in Sodom. You should not live in places where people are far from God. That means you can't live on earth. Because there's people far from God everywhere. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that at all. But what he's saying, the point is that Lot prioritized the material prosperity over God. Lot, material, or Lot prioritized in his own heart the material possessions he could gain over and before God. Listen, church, I know people who are in jobs. I've been in youth ministry 11 years before we planted, right, and came on here. I've, I've, I've met families who, who dads and moms have jobs that are absolutely terrible for their family. And it leaves them no time for their family and leaves them no time to serve the kingdom of God through the local church. But it pays for a lifestyle they've always wanted to live, so they stay in it. They stay in it for 40, 50 years of their life. I know of couples of kids where both parents work. I'm not here to beat up people who both parents work. But these both parents work not because they feel called to it or because it's the wisest use of their time or gifts. Because they believe it's, it's what's needed for the lifestyle they want to live. Regardless of consultation or not. Regardless of asking God or not if that's what should happen in this season of life. It's, it's, it's required to pay for a lifestyle that they really want. 
I know parents whose kids are not really involved at church at all because they're so committed to, to, to dance. Can I just fiddle just a minute? Or baseball or softball. Listen, I get it. It's hard. I understand. Just stick with me a minute. I get it. I got three kids. When my kids become teenagers, I understand. It's hard to balance. It's hard to balance what we're going to do, how we're going to do traveling tournaments, how we're going to be involved in this stuff. I get it. I totally get it. But let's face it. Your kid's probably not going to play in the major leagues. But they're going to make it to heaven or hell. So why would you sacrifice spiritual things on the altar of something you know is passing? Something you know is fleeting? Something you know is improbable? Something that you know will not satisfy their soul? When I watch parents, it seems that many parents care more about where their kids go to college than where their kids spend eternity. And that's sad. That's really sad in America. What good is it if me and my children become leading men and women of Sodom, but we lose our soul? It's a bad idea. It's not that any of those things are wrong, right? I grew up doing this, traveling, ball all the time. I grew up in a family that worshipped it. I didn't have God in my life, not in my family. It's not that any of these things are wrong. It's just that God should get the first priority in every decision. In every single decision of our life. He gets the first and the weightiest place. One more real quick. What is the primary factor in the career you choose or where you live? What is the primary factor in the career you choose or where you live? What we say, what you've heard us say, is whatever you're good at, do it well to the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. I'm going to say it again. When it comes to your career, you want to know success in your career? Here it is. Success in your career is whatever you're good at. Do it well to the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. There are so many factors that go into where you are going to pursue your career. There's lots of factors. Like family. I talk to people in our own church. Their career choice is based on proximity to family. I get that. I understand that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great deal, right? Living close to family. The where of, of, of the, the where they like to live. Their allergies. There's all kinds of deals. So if there's going to be all kinds of factors involved of where you pursue your career, why not let the kingdom of God be the largest factor? Why not let the strategic place God's put you in the mission of God be the greatest factor? you got to get a job somewhere. I've told graduates, high school graduates for the last 10 years of my life, you got to get a job somewhere. Why not get a job in a place where God is doing something strategic? Get a job in a place in a city where God's doing something amazing. Lot's primary concern is, is where he pursued his career, which is where he can make the most money. It did not turn out well for Lot. It did not turn out well for Lot. Whatever you're good at, do to the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Lot prioritized the riches he could see. Number two, Lot prioritized self-interest over generosity. Lot prioritized self-interest over generosity. What are you saying, Craig? Lot chose what was best for him. Even though in this case, he actually had to wrong his uncle to get it. Abraham clearly should have got the better choice. Lot is miles away from a generous heart. He's nowhere close to a generous heart. He thinks about the prosperity of one person and his choices. Guess who that one person is? Him and his immediate family. Isn't it nasty to think that there's 7.2 billion people on the earth and when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you spend 80% of your time thinking about one of the 7.2 billion. Isn't that disgusting? And that's Lot. Lot. He just, he just looked after himself. He he prioritized self-interest over any kind of generosity. Now let's look at Abraham by contrast. Abraham by contrast, number one, prioritized the kingdom of God. He didn't prioritize the riches he could see. He prioritized the kingdom of God. His question was not where is the best land, but God, where do you want me to go? 
Did you notice in verse 3 and 4, look at your text again, that his first act upon coming into the new land was to build an altar and ask God what he wanted. Don't you love that, church? He comes into a new land and he builds an altar. In fact, when he got there, he, he went to the place called Bethel. Everybody say Bethel. Where he had previously heard from God because he said, God, the first thing I need from you is to hear from you about what you want in this chapter of my life. When I make a transition, God, I need to hear from you first about what you desire. Abraham thought about God most and thought about God first in every decision. Abraham thought about God first and most in every decision. You see that not only in how he makes decisions, but you see that in what he does with his blessings and victories. Let me explain this to you. In the next chapter, chapter 14, we won't take time to read it. Lot's going to get captured by some of the kings of Sodom. And guess who's going to mount the rescue operation that would have made Chuck Norris jealous? It's Abraham. And here comes MacGyver, right? Anybody watch old MacGyver back in the day? So here comes Abram mounting this rescue operation. Doogie Howser fans? Any Doogie Howser fans in the room? So he goes, and, and some of you, one, one, I got Uno, Uno. So he goes, yeah, there we go. And so uh, he goes on this rescue operation. He grabs the spools and destroys the kings of Sodom, pulls off a great victory. In the process, he ends up with a lot of spool from the kings that attacked him, which made him even richer. And guess what the first thing Abraham does is? The first thing he does is he tithes. He literally gives 10% of what he got to a mysterious man named Melchizedek, who is presented as the king of Salem, Salem meaning peace, Melchizedek, who is presented as the priest of God. Not only was, listen, God's Abraham, or, or was Abraham, God Abraham's first thought in making the decision, but God was the first place Abraham turned to after the victory to say thank you. Because all of Abraham's blessings and prosperities come from God, so he should get the first fruit of everything he received. So some of you just asking, I can hear it in your mind right now, why was giving to Melchizedek considered giving to God? Why was giving to the church in the New Testament era considered giving to God? Well, let's just talk about it in a minute. Well, because God, all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the covenant he made with mankind, he gives or appoints appointed instruments. There's always an institution or a person by which the work of God happened. Think of the Old Testament, the Jewish priestly system. Who were you to tie to as a Jew? It wasn't to go throw it up in the air to God. It was to go to the priestly system. God always put forth an institution, always put forth a leadership factory, so to speak, a person in which he would bless the earth. Well, in the New Testament, guess who God's appointed instrument is? The local church. That's how God does it. That's how God saved people. That's how God discipled people. That's how God sent people on missionary journeys. God does his work on the earth through one primary institution. It's called the local church. And the church was the means through which he preached the gospel. He discipled people, met the needs of the poor. I I've talked to, I'm blue in the face to millennials who love giving to 501c3s. I'm all for nonprofit agencies. You can give and you need to give to 501c3s, but how many know Christ in the local church is the hope of the world? You can go to Africa and you can feed everybody, but listen, you can feed bellies and full bellies go to hell just as much as empty bellies go to hell. I'm not being a person of no compassion. I'm here to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth from the local church. This is the way God intended. This is the way that God desired it. This is the way the message of the gospel would go forth and this is so around here that's why we say you don't give to the church you give through the church when you come on Sundays you're not giving to the church you're giving through the church to the kingdom of God you're giving through the church to people be discipled for his name you're giving through the church that lives might be set free and delivered from the bondages of sin number two Abraham prioritized generosity over self-interest he prioritized generosity over self-interest if you think about this text, Abraham thought about himself third. Everybody say third. 
really third in this decision. Who was first? God was first. Lot was second. Abraham was third. You remember the, the word joy? It's an acrostic. How do you have joy? You put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last, J-O-Y. I know it's really corny, but it works because that's what happens in Abraham. He put God first, Lot second, and himself third. He placed himself third. And because of that, guess who thought about Abraham's needs? God did. I'd much rather like God to think about my needs than me think about my needs. Because he put God first, he put a or Lot second, then God put his needs first. I love this verse, folks. This has become one of the foundational verses that I love in life. Proverbs 19, 17, you ready? He said, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And who will repay him? God will repay the man who lends for his deed. When you loan money, what's the question you're always asking? Are you going to pay me back? Are you going to pay me back? When you give to the poor, you're giving money to God. And God takes personal responsibility to pay you back. Wow, what a verse. You lend to the poor. God is the guarantor of that exchange. He will be the one that will pay your money back. That's what the Bible says. God would take care of you. Or what about this promise, Proverbs 11 and 24? This is what the scripture says. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Abraham experienced that, didn't he? God multiplied what he gave to Abraham. My question for you is this, church. You ready? Which man better exemplifies your approach to life? Which man better exemplifies your approach to life? Is it Lot or is it Abraham? In order for you to answer that question, let me give you some diagnostic questions. Number one, what is first in your decisions? What is absolutely first in your decisions? People always say, Craig, you've got to have a life verse. Well, I've never had a life verse. My life verse kind of changes month after month. Have you with me? But the closest life verse I've ever had, the weightiest in my decisions, is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Probably my life verse. What's Matthew 6 and 33? Jesus says very clearly, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. What are these things? You know what those things are? Everything else you need in life. Go read the text. God will provide. My dad just always tell me this too. Listen, you put God first and what happens? When you get to school, God's going to give you the wisdom you need to become a pastor. You put God first in your life, God's going to give you the wife that you need to be in pastoral ministry. You put God first, God will meet every single other thing that you need in this life. You know what that means in every decision you make you go to Bethel in every decision you go to you make I'm talking about everyone folks every decision you go to Bethel you lay your head on the rock again where you first build an altar to the Lord and say God what do you want out of this decision amen church is this okay today second diagnostic question does God get the first and best of all you receive does God get the first and best of all you receive let me tell you a story that's really rocked me recently. And it rocked me because I started telling my kids this story. And then it just so pricked my curiosity. I had to read it over and over again. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are two sons of Adam and Eve, right? First two sons. Both made an offering to God, right? We know that, that Cain was a farmer. We know that Abel was a shepherd because Cain brings, first fruits of, uh, Cain brings um, uh, grain and Abel brings some part from the flock, the fat portion. So we know, and, and we read this text so many times I've heard preachers say, well, it must have been the amount that was given. Well, that's nowhere in the text. God, of course, accepts one sacrifice, Abel, and he rejects the other sacrifice, Cain. And when you go read that text, you can read in Psalm. There's multiple, multiple different passages that speak to Cain and Abel. But there is a one clear difference. You know what that one clear difference is in Genesis chapter 4? Abel gave the firstborn of his flock. Which what that means is, is that before any other animals 
were given, God got the first. And people could have said to Abel, uh, what if no more animals are born? Abel said, I don't care. I'll trust God with that. I'm going to take the first of the animals that are born, and they're going to my God. Cain, by contrast, waited until the whole crop came in. He waited till all of it came in. Let me put it in, in, in natural terms. The whole paycheck, and we find out whatever our budget is for the month, right? Uh, we're going to wait till the whole thing. He waited until he could see if, man, if, if I'm able to meet all the needs and I'm able to have enough, then I'll give. He was what I call in church a December giver. Now, we love December givers. If you want to be a December giver, you do it, baby. If you want to get out of that tax bracket, you give away, baby, from December 18 to 25 or, or, or 31, whatever. But the, a December giver, right? In other words, they wait to the end of the year to see what you could spare. God was pleased with Abel's offering, and God was not pleased with Cain's. He rejected him. Which represents your approach to giving? What you give your first and best to reveals what is God in your life. I want to say it again. What you give your first and best to reveals what is God in your life. Did you know that everybody on planet earth ties to something? Did you know everybody's a tither? There's no one that's not a tither. Everybody gives their first and their best to something. And what you give your first and your best to shows what you treasure most. Two things it does. Number one, what you treasure most. What you give your first and best to shows what you treasure most. If the first and best of your paycheck goes to improving your lifestyle, that shows what you deem most important. And what you deem most important is comfort or status. Just follow me a minute. Did you notice in verse 10? Look at verse 10. Lot described the Jordan Valley like the garden of the Lord. Lot lifted up his eyes, saw the Jordan Valley was well watered like the garden of the Lord. There is a reason Moses describes it that way. What Lot saw had a spiritual dimension to him. This was paradise. So it was like Eden. So because it was like Eden and paradise, it was first in his decisions. So for Lot, land was paradise. For Abraham, God's presence was paradise. That's why he came to God and said, where do you want me to live? In other words, I'd rather live in the desert with you because that's paradise than in the riches without you because that's hell. Man, what if this got down into our hearts? Lord, your presence is the place of my paradise, not a land, not a house. It's your presence. That's what I'm giving to. That's what I'm listening to. What Lot saw had a spiritual dimension. It shows what you treasure most, but what you give your first and best to also shows what you trust most. Trust most. If the first thing you do with your paycheck is save from it, you give your first and your best to savings, that's because money's what you trust. So if someone did that, I would say, you think you're responsible alone for securing your future. That's what I'd say to him, and that's biblically true, correct? If you give your first and best, that's what you trust the most. So you're giving that first. Why could Abel give the first of his flock to God? Because he trusted God to provide more flock, more animals. This is what he did. Abraham could be generous with the land because he trusted God was going to give him more land. He trusted what you give your first and best to reveals what you trust most. I had a pastor friend. He had a couple in his church that uh, had this really big problem, trouble with tithing. They had a hard time with his tithing. And um, he goes to him and says, hey, hey, let's make a deal. He says, here's what we'll do. He says, how about you write out your first and your best? Your first and your best, write it. Write it to the church. I'll give you a tithing envelope, and I want you to give it to me. Here's what I'll do. You ready? I'm going to take the tithe. I'm going to put it in my desk drawer, and I'm not going to cash in. Here's what I'll do. At the end of the month, if you don't have enough money to pay your bills, to take care of your needs, here's what I'll do. I won't have cash the check. I'll give it back to you. It sound like a deal? And the husband looked at the wife and it's like, okay, I think that's pretty good. I, I, I get it. Sound reasonable? Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable. 
They look at the pastor and they said, yeah, that sounds good. And he said, shame on you because you trust your pastor more than you do God. That's what God said he would do. So you trust a man's drawer more than you trust the heavenly father's hands? Come on, church. Think about that. He says what you give your first and your best to, it reveals what not only you treasure, but you trust. I'm casting my life. Lord, you said you would do this. You said you would pour back. You said you would take care of my needs. See, for many of you, the reason you're not generous is not that you're stingy. You're not stingy. You're fearful. And God's not your trust. That's why we're not generous. We're fearful. We're fearful. We hold tight. What you give your first and your best to reveals what is God in your life. Scripture says that money competes with God in one of two ways. You ready? Depending on our personality. Scripture says money competes one of two ways. For some, money's their significance. Everybody say significance. So you get an extra thousand dollars, what do you do? You spend it on a car, travel, TV. It's cool, it's good, it's fine, right? A lot of people in this room, the way you like money is for significance. So it's, you get an extra thousand dollars, you're like, we need another TV, right? And then for other people, for other personalities, money is not their significance, it's their security, so they get $1,000, what do they do? They put that thing in the rainy day fund instantaneously. They put that thing in the savings, they put it there, and they hold it, right? And here's what God's sense of humor is. Those two people always get married to each other. At least in my experience with premarital counseling, it's always those two people. One believes in its significance, and one views money and security. And so you get an extra $1,000, like, woo, let's get us a TV. And you're like, are you a second grader? We don't need a TV. Put that thing in the bank account, you know? You think you're crazy. And both people in the marriage think they have a problem with money. But ironically, they have the same problem just from a different direction. They're idolizing money from different directions. They look to money to do something only God can do. Why? Because, let me say it again, God should be our primary source of significance, and God should be our primary source of trust. So when we use money as significance and we use money as trust, we've messed up quickly. Quickly. Only then are we freed up to be generous. Let me say it again. Everybody ties to something. Everybody gives their first and best to something. What is it for you? What is it for you? And please don't get caught up on the 10% thing. The reason I say that is because when you say first and best, the tithe, it's the best part of your budget. For years of my life, when I first started tithing, I used it, I used it like the God tax. It's like God went first. But what the problem is, that's not what the point of the tithe is. The tithe is that the tithe would affect how you spend the rest of the 90 and I just wrote it off like deal and then do what I want. So that's why I don't even use that language anymore. It's not about that. It's about the first and the best. It's about the largest part of your budget. First of your budget's going to the work of the kingdom. It's entrusted to God's hand. God wants me to give in a way that shows he's my first and best. So what do you spend your first and best on? Your mortgage? Your savings? Your lifestyle? Whatever you give your first and best to is what you worship. What's God in your life? Here's... The, th the letter, or letter C. Do you think of yourself as an owner or steward of your blessings? Do you think of yourself as an owner or steward? God had told Abraham he's going to bless him to be a blessing. So when Abraham received a blessing, his natural disposition was to consider how it was going to bless others. Thus, when it came time to choose where he lives, where did he give the first and best choice to? Not himself, but to Lot. Because he understood God didn't bless him for him. He blessed him for others. Lot, of course, was the opposite. What did he think about first? Himself. Lot's the first American in the Bible, folks. First American. Here's his philosophy in life. Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on your can. Right? 
Get all you can. Can all you get. Sit on your can. Wait till retirement. Which better represents you? Are you a channel of blessing? Or are you a reservoir of blessing? Listen, according to scripture, God has blessed us, not just so we can enrich our lives, but so that he, through us, could bless others. He increases our giving, our resources, multiplies us, not to increase just our standard of living, but also our standard of giving. Remember our verse from 2 Corinthians, I looked at two weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 9 and 10, look what it says, you will be enriched in every way. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will be enriched. I like that verse. You're going to be enriched in every way. But why are you going to be enriched in every way? To be generous. I'm going to make a bold statement. If I haven't made one yet. What that means is that if you don't give generously, you're actually stealing. You're embezzling God's money. Let me explain it to you. Think about how upset you'd be if you made two donations, huge donations to feed the children. And when you gave the donations to feed the children, you found out that 90% of the money went to the CEO and not feeding the children. You would be ticked, and rightfully so. You gave monster donations, and 90% went to the leader of the organization because you would say, that guy's stealing what, what meant for him. That's what exactly each one of us is. You know what we are? We're nonprofit ministries for the king. And when God gives to us, he makes a donation. And when we use 90% on us and not other people, God says, you're stealing from me. Do you understand this? You are his ministry. You are his extension. You are feed the children. And when God, the great generous giver, invests into you, gives into you, it's not just for you. It's to bless others. We're walking nonprofits today. That's what we are. We're ministries of Jesus. God has blessed us to increase our capacity for generosity. Why has God blessed us, church? For one reason, to bless Metro Atlanta and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ through us. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Seriously. What does Lot's self-centeredness look like in the context of a church? To not posture ourselves to grow. For us just to start now, two years in, say, what kind of comfortable church should we have? We're just telling you, we're right on the verge at this point, praying and asking, believing. The goal is not to be in this building much more. If we stayed in this building, we would be selfish because we would be posturing ourselves not to grow, which would say the rest of Woodstock can go to hell. Right? So we've got to posture ourselves to move. We've got to posture ourselves to increase. We've got to posture ourselves with capacity to say, Lord, how are you going to use us in this season? One of the things we found is that the peak hours to reach people, we are a missional church. We are a church that's holistic. We are a church that believes in growth phases as much as we believe in gatherings. We believe in connect groups just as much as we believe in gatherings. We believe in giving gifting teams. So I'm not here to say that we're only a Sunday morning only, but here's the deal. The peak hours to reach people is Sunday mornings. Well, if we get to a place where on Sunday mornings we're 80% full and we don't posture ourselves to grow anymore, we are essentially not being wise and, in fact, maybe stealing. Like, I told somebody the other day, I said, how many cars can you park in a three-car garage? It's not, doesn't take rocket science. How many? Three. Three cars. How many cars can you park in a three-car garage if you pray about it? Three. We can only fit so many people in this building. It don't matter if we pray till the cows come home. We're going to have to get another building. Are you with me? Okay, you can pray all you want. You can pray till you're blue in the face. But the reality is you can fit so many people, right? And God doesn't fix a problem like that. Without you saying, you know what, I've got to enlarge my garage. Now, I don't know why you'd ever need more than four, three, five, six cars, but you understand what I'm saying. And the end of this whole thing is that God multiplies Abraham beyond his wildest dreams. Everybody say kingdom economics. 
It's in your card before you. This is what kingdom economics is. Whatever you prioritize before God, you'll lose. But whatever you give to God, the first and best of, he multiplies for eternal significance. Whatever you prioritize, you lose. Can you see that play out with Lot? He chose money first. What did he lose? Money. He lost all of his fortune, all of his family. Here's the great C.S. Lewis. I know he hurts our brains early in the morning, but here's what he said. C.S. Lewis said, There's, uh, in life, there are first things and second things. First thing is God, second thing is everything else. He said, when we put first things first, God multiplies second things. But when we put second things first, we lose not only the first things, we lose the second things. If that didn't hurt your brain, just think of that lot. The number one contributor of divorce in America right now, not infidelity, it's money issues. Ironically, when you put money first, you lose the capacity to enjoy money. Ecclesiastes 5.10. If money's first, you've now lost your taste to enjoy it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You're only satisfied with money when you don't love money. Here, I, I, one of the elements of growing older, I've had people tell me before they lost their sense of taste. They could go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, it doesn't matter. They can't taste it anymore. How many people cannot taste money anymore because they keep money the priority of their heart? You lose the capacity to enjoy the very thing that your heart is set on. That's what he's saying in Ecclesiastes 5.10. The money. The money. When priorities, you lose capacity. But when you put God first, God multiplies you like Abraham. God increased what Abraham had, and he blessed the world in the process. Look at Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruit of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Us evangelicals, right? Notice this. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruit of all your produce. Your barns will be filled with plenty. What is he saying? He's saying the way your barns get filled with plenty and your vats overflow with wine is not because you are smart in investments. He said it's first and foremost because you honor the Lord. Amen? You honor the Lord. How do they overflow? By giving the first and best to God. What you give to God, he multiplies. We see this all over the Bible. Five loaves and two fish. He multiplies it for 5,000 people to be fed. But how many basketballs are left over in the day? Twelve. So the dude, the little Jewish boy, went with a Ninja Turtle lunchbox with five loaves and two fish. We forget the story. He goes home with 12 basketfuls. He went with a little bit of a Lunchable. He comes back with Golden Corral Buffet. And his mom's like, what happened? Well, I met a man that when you give to him your first and best, he multiplies for eternal significance. I never had the idea that my life... Life could bless 10,000 or 15,000 people today. This is what God does. He multiplies what is given to him first and best. He multiplies it for his kingdom. He multiplies it for his kingdom. Turn with me to Genesis 22. I want to read just a few texts of, of scripture before I, I finish. Genesis 22. I told you prioritize and surrender. Notice the surrender part. This story is a test like no other test that Abraham receives. I'm going to ask. Casey, just to come and play the band, you can stay. But throughout Abraham's life, we see God test him again and again to prove what's really in him. Abraham, do you really believe me? Abraham, do you trust me? Are you ready to follow me anywhere? Think about this for a minute, church. Why didn't God immediately give Abraham his son when he promised him? He waited 30 or 40 years. Why didn't God immediately give him the promised land the very moment he agreed to follow him? Instead, he waits 30 to 40 years for a son, wandering along this uh, circuitous, so to speak, journey. Fraught with dangers and heartbreaks and setbacks and difficulties. And why? Why does he do that? And this is so important. Ready? Because God was not just trying to take Abraham somewhere. He was not just trying to give Abraham something. He was trying to make Abraham into someone. 
I'm going to say that again. That's called the patience of faith. He was not just trying to take Abraham somewhere. He's not just trying to give Abraham something. He's trying to make you and me into someone. That's his interest. See, what God is doing in you, you see, is just as important as what he's doing through you. Just as important. God desires not just to take us to heaven. He desires to put heaven into us. That's what God wants. So what's this multiply season about, Craig, in in July? God's not only wanting to multiply the ministry wide through us, but multiply faith and surrender in us. Faith. Consistent surrender. When you read this story, Genesis 22, Abraham has already had a miracle baby. His name is Isaac. Everybody say Isaac. Isaac means son of laughter because this whole thing is just funny. <laughs> and everybody in the story but us it seems to understand that. Think about it. Abraham and Sarah were both 100 when Isaac born, which meant that for Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah's birthday, they all got diapers. Y'all didn't catch that. that went, Look at Genesis 22, verse 1. After... You got your text, just open it for me. It's right there in front of you. Just, just look at it. After these things, what things? The birth things. When Isaac is now about 15, scholars say, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! He said, here am I. Here am I, folks. It's not Hebrew for hello. Here am I, according to scholars, saying, I stand ready for your command. Not hello, God. It's, I'm ready for you to speak to me. That's what it is. To be frank, I find that response pretty remarkable because every time God called Abraham up to this point he asked him to leave something good and attempt something impossible but yet he comes to him again says Abraham he says here am I Lord Abraham says here am I why because he trusts God everybody say trust the difference in a life of drudgery and a life of joy is whether you trust Jesus my God, I can't say it again. I can say it enough times. The difference between a life of drudgery and a life of joy is whether or not you trust Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. You show me a happy Christian, I'll show you one who's learned to trust. You show me a faltering Christian who's up and down, I'll show you someone who has yet to learn how good and committed and awesome God is towards them. You can't receive joy until you get in deep with trust. A life of drudgery or a life of joy is whether or not you trust God. Verse 2. So God said, take your son. Scholars tell us here that the language slows down dramatically. Up to this point, it's fast pace. But the scholar that I read said, this, this is how you should do verse 2. Take, period, your, period, son. He slows down. Take your son, your only son, verse 2. Whom you love, go to the land of Moriah. Moriah means teach me, just extra money there. And offer him there as an offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, tell you. What is God saying? The Hebrew word for son is the word ben. It's used ten times over and over again. Your son, your only son. Take your son, the son that you love. Your son, your son, your son. This seems unbelievable and it's reverberating through Abraham's soul because this child represented everything to Abraham. Everything in Abraham's value and significance was found in this son. He was a child of a promise. He would have to lead everything. Everything. And all of his hopes and dreams and affections are centered on this child. And now Abraham's an old man. He really loves uh, his child and, and lives for his child. He was old and rich. All he could do is play with Isaac every day. And God says, offer him up to me as a burnt offering. Now I know you may be asking the question, how could God ask someone to kill somebody? I'll deal with that in a moment. 
But for just right now, could you let this represent, this is how I want to close, one thing in your life that you treasure most. That's what Abraham's asked to do. The thing that you're living for right now. What is that one thing for you? In fact, after this text, there's no talking. Because when God asks for that thing, it's, you're speechless. What is if the one thing God came to you right now and he asked, and you would be speechless? What is that one thing? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, sat on his donkey, took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place in which God had told him on the third day. Everybody say third day. Folks, I think after three days, I'd have talked myself up out of this thing. After the third day, I would have already talked myself out of it. But true faith is not shown in the initial response. True faith is shown on the third day. True faith is not shown when God speaks. True faith is in the third day of following Jesus. You know what it's like. Come on, church. To begin so well in faith only to falter on day two or three. Maybe you, God called you to break off a bad relationship to honor him, and you did. But now you're asking and wondering why you did it. You're called the third day. Maybe he called you to a ministry assignment, but you're not seeing the fruit now. And now you're angry with him. That's not the first day. That's the third day. It wasn't supposed to be all warm fuzzies and goosebumps, but it didn't. God led you to make a financial sacrifice, but it's gotten hard. And now you're mad at him for what he asked you to do. You don't really show your faith in the initial yes. You show it on the third day. The third day, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship. That's an interesting word. Worship. And we will come again to you. The word come again is plural. We. Abraham was convinced that somehow both of these boys are coming back. Both of us are coming back. We will come back to you. Why? Because God had a promise to fulfill. He didn't know how it would work, but he knew that it would. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, because that's what dads do. They burn and they cut things away from us that don't belong. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. (laughs) But isn't the lamb a pretty big piece of this offering? Come on, dad, where's the lamb? Abraham saw it. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now we see what Abraham's been doing for three days in that dark silence. He's been rehearsing the promises of God for three days. He was probably recounting the encounter in Genesis 15 where God took responsibility for both sides. And he just kept quiet and he just kept walking to Moriah. And he's just rehearsing. God, you said you'd do it. You've done it before. God, you said this. You promised. God, you promised this would happen. And it's important to understand that what drove Abraham up the mountain that day was not the strength of his character. What drove up the mountain that day was not I can do this you can do this you're the little train that can no 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 it's God is faithful God is amazing God has always come through God will come through again listen when God asks you to walk through some difficult mountains in life the way you make them is not by the strength of your personal character it's by rehearsing the promises and the goodness of almighty God season after season after season and now he's walking up the mountain and he's just understanding God the strength of my character is not about the strength of my character it's about confidence in the goodness and promise of God even the use shall falter the strong men or the youngest men shall fail but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up on wings like eagles they shall run and not grow weary they shall walk and not faint you want to fly like an eagle you better start believing the promises of God and then all of a sudden you become somebody who begins to soar verse 9 when they came to the place of which God had told him Abraham built the altar there laid the wood in order bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar kudos to Isaac Isaac's 15 years old. I think a 15-year-old dude could evade or overcome a frail old man. But Isaac willingly lays down. He's crawling up on the altar, trusting God and his dad. Let me ask you, Mom, Dad, would your teenager do that? Teenager, would you do that? 
The only way Isaac could have done that is because he inherited trust in God from his daddy. He heard his daddy talk about it all the time. He heard his daddy speak about it all the time. He saw his daddy live it out all the time. And his daddy's trust in God caught fire in his heart. Listen to me, mom and dad. You have no idea how living out the promises of God enables your trust to become their trust. And God showed me something this week I'd never seen before. It's not about bringing your kid to church. It's not about putting your kid in a Christian school. It's, it's, it's when they hear you in difficult times when all hell's breaking loose in your hive and your home and they hear you rehearsing the promises of God, your trust becomes their trust and when it comes time for them to get on the altar, they do so without your initiative. Come on. When it's time for them to place themselves on the altar, when it's time for them to be 15 and say, I'm going to follow you, it's no big deal to follow Jesus because their daddy's trust has become their trust. Then Abraham reached out his hand, verse 10, took the knife to slaughter his son. Took the knife to slaughter his son. God stops him. His knife suspended in the air. Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God. Having seen you, you've not withheld your only son from me. I see the love you have for me, Abraham. So what did Abraham do? He passed the test. He proved himself. There's nowhere God could take him. He wouldn't trust God. There's nowhere he would not go with God. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering. So Abram called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. When you name a place in Hebrew culture, that's significant. It encapsulates the significance of the whole moment. Isn't it interesting that they call this place the Lord provides and not how Abraham obeyed? Isn't this whole story about the obedience of Abraham? No! It's about the provision of Almighty God. (laughs) The Lord shall provide, not the test of Abraham. No, 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 no. You see, centuries later, another son, another one and only son, whom the father loved, would walk up a mountain, and that man would crawl up on the wood, but yet he wouldn't stop it. The angel wouldn't stop it. The knife wouldn't be stopped in midair. It would slash through the heart of Jesus in three days. Notice they went three days in the mountain. Why didn't they go to the mountain right there? Because they went to the mountains of Moriah. If you go to Israel, you'll find out the mountains of Moriah is called Calvary, the very place. In other words, they're enacting a drama 2,000 years earlier, and they're showing what's going to happen when Jesus ascends that hill. It's as Abraham plays the part of God and Isaac played the part of Christ but up and only until the moment that God stops the sacrifice and he points to the lamb caught in the thorn bushes. By the way, the lamb, the, the, the ram caught in the thorn bushes was caught by its horns which means his body was unblemished. Jesus' body was a bone was not broken. You understand this? It was unblemished. He laid it down of his own accord because he was the spotless lamb. It couldn't have a lamb that would be cut in the side from barbed wire or thorn but no he was caught in his horns and more than a thousand years later Jesus would walk up the same mountain but this time no substitute lamb would be caught in the thicket because he himself was the unblemished lamb he would willingly stay on the altar and the father plunged the knife of justice into his chest and because of that we can know that the father loves us that he cares for us you see this story is not first and foremost about Abraham's commitment to God it's about God's commitment to Abraham Verse 15, I've closed. And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time and said, By myself I've sworn, because you've done this. Everybody say, because. 
You've not withheld your son. I will bless you, multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It is because Jesus obeyed, we are saved. And by extension, because we obey, others are saved. If we obey, others will enter the kingdom of God through that obedience. Listen, we are sitting here today because Abraham obeyed on Mount Moriah. Other people will be sitting in the kingdom because you obeyed this week. listen to this. You say, Craig, how did he do that? How did he have the patience and faith? Abraham, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You want the secret of patience of faith? Keep your eyes locked on where you're headed. Where you're headed. And you know, we're all going to be there one day. I was reading, Pastor Chad talked about the Psalms. I was reading through the uh, the Old Testament again this week and I got to Ezekiel 45 I want you to just listen to this this is so powerful this is how or for, verse 48 I should say verse 40, chapter 48 verse 35 the last verse of the entire book of Ezekiel you want to know the secret trend of how we are willing to risk everything here it is and the name of the city from that time on that's the city where you'll be living will be the Lord is there <laughs> He says the name of that city gets changed. And it's just the Lord is there. <laughs> you want to talk about the ability to, 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 to sacrifice and to risk? Because you're going to a city where the city's name is the Lord is there. You want to know how to make it through a hard, risky situation? Just know you're going to a city. Keep your eyes on a city that the city's name is the Lord is there. And everything else seems to pass away. The Lord is there. If you've never done this before, do it this week. Think about when you're in heaven. I sometimes this week, I close my eyes and thought about skipping on the streets of gold. I imagine myself running out of the mansion with the Father. I went down to the tree of life and I was eating it. The, the leaves are for the healing of the nation. I was drinking some from the water of life. What an amazing, amazing experience. He says the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Would you bow your heads with me? Father. Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.